We are continuing in the life of David this evening as we are uh, going through very sporadically uh, the life of David as we go through the stories. And last week's sermon, I, I want to say a couple of things about last week's sermon. is a bit of a downer. A couple of people said some things to me after the sermon uh, about sort of the stuff that was going on in David's life that we looked at last week and the things that he did not do very well. And, and here's the difficulty with this is the difficulty with what we call expository preaching, right? If you're going to read all of the Bible stories, then you're going to come up on some stuff that's not very nice. It's easy to think about the people of the Bible if all you know is sort of the kids' stories. We do tend to sanitize things for the kids, right? I mean, we just do. There's some stories in the Bible that my kids, just quite frankly, I'm not going to tell them yet. They're not ready for it. But if you never sort of go past that, and just all you know about the Bible stories is sort of the stuff you learned as a kid and those sort of famous stories about David and Goliath and, and David and the harp and David and Jonathan. And, oh, it's so nice. David was so awesome. Then we miss sort of the rest of the stories, right? Reading all of the Bible reveals that the people in the Bible were in all the ways that matter just like people today, which means they... We're selfish and inadequate and greedy sometimes and flawed and limited and made a lot of bad choices, just like, guess what, people do today, right? So one of the, the dan- not dangers, it's not the right way of saying it, the, one of the challenges of, ex- of just going through a person's life in the Bible is if you're going to do it properly, you do have to cover the whole thing, right? You have to cover exactly what's going on. David's failings, as we've read a number of the stories about David that were not as, as pleasant, it's important to know that David's failings did not prevent God from using him to accomplish his will. Despite all of the things that David did wrong, he still is, I guess, maybe top three characters in the Bible outside of Jesus as far as import goes. Right? We could maybe put Abraham, Moses, and David 1A, 1B, and 1C in that order. Right? So even though David had some failings, that did not prevent God from using him. And, and David's flaws, you think about the difference between David's failings and his flaws, the failings are the things that he did wrong. The flaws are the things in his personality or his attitude that were wrong. His flaws didn't prevent him from being, quote-unquote, again, right, a man after God's own heart. Even though he had some bad attitudes about some things and and had some uh, misunderstandings and, and had some bad times, he was still called a man after God's own heart and used by God in the kingdom to accomplish great things. So the, the point is, for what? For us, for what? Whatever your struggles are, whatever your flaws are, whatever your failings are, you can still be a person of God, a, a man or woman after God's own heart, and still be used by him to do great things. That's, that, the failings is not what prevents us from accomplishing good things in God's kingdom. It's how do we respond to those failings. And again, the, the real contrast between David and Saul was not that they made mistakes. David made mistakes. Saul made mistakes. David sinned. Saul sinned. It is how they responded to those failings. What did they do when they were confronted with their sin? Saul made excuses. Hemmed and hawed. Didn't, retake, didn't own up to it. Didn't want to do the right thing. Didn't want to make things right. David, for the most part, in his times when he was confronted with sin immediately confessed, immediately repented, immediately turned, and tried to do better. That's the point. 
So, as we come in the life of David, we ended last week with him capturing Jerusalem. It had been inhabited by the Jebusites for a long time. This is why it is the city of David, right? Why is Jerusalem the city of David? David's the one that eventually conquered Jerusalem for the Israelites, made it his capital. And at this point, if you've been following along, uh, we've only really been reading in the books of Samuel, First and Second Samuel. Now, First Chronicles, really beginning last week, First Chronicles is joining in our narrative, is parallel accounts. And I said this at the beginning, we need to understand as we think about parallel accounts in the Bible, Second Samuel and First Chronicles are going to cover a lot of the same stuff, but First Chronicles was written way later, written for a different audience under a different purpose, and so there's a different emphasis, right? In the stories in First Chronicles and Second Samuel, they will not be identical either in the stories that are told or the things that are emphasized in the stories. So if you're following along, you want to be keeping track in what we've been studying. We're in First Chronicles 13 through 18 and Second Samuel 6 through 8. And again, they're not identical. They're very similar, but there's different emphasis depending on which version you read because the audiences of the original had different needs. And one thing that is really emphasized that we've, I've seen, I hope we've seen quite a bit is the idea of presumption in the life of David and really in the life of Saul too. To presume against God's will. And we'll see that in 2 Samuel 6, 5 through 11, one of the main stories we're talking about tonight. Uh, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord. This is, of course, David has sort of finally consolidated power. He's taken Jerusalem. He's, he's becoming king. He's, he's going to have it all going on. And they're celebrating and song, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and uh, those things and cymbals. And when they had come to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. Uh, you can see what's going on, right? They're bringing the ark to Jerusalem, the city of David, right? That's going to be his capital. So they're bringing the ark and they're going along and they're ha- it's basically like a parade. That's, that's what this is. Yeah, you know, the, the Super Bowl parade for the, the winners of the Super Bowl, they all get together, the team's, up, the team's in the middle and they all go down and everybody's cheering and hollering. That's kind of what's going on right now. It's a parade for the victory of David. They're bringing the ark back and the oxen stumble as it reaches out as one would do, right? This is the Ark of the Covenant, the most important artifact in the entire nation. You can't let that hit the ground. Reaches out, what happens? The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died beside the Ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day, and David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the Ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed him and all his household. Two presumptions in the story. David presuming to know what's best. And again, the real contrast in David's life between the times when he explicitly asks God, hey, what should I do here? And the times when he doesn't. It's so stark. It's, it's one of the most clear distinctions in the entire story of David. When he asks God, what should he do? It goes well. And when he doesn't ask God, it goes poorly. Here, he presumes what? First, he presumes, oh, anyone can handle the ark. Uzzah, you go take care of that. And, you know, it's probably not just Uzzah. It's probably a bunch of guys, right, that are, that are pulling it with the oxen. I don't know exactly how that would have been. If there's like a cart or if they're sort of latched to the oxen. I don't know. It's irrelevant. But he presumes, oh, anybody can do it. It doesn't matter. Uzzah was not allowed, essentially. That's what it says, right? He struck Uzzah because of his error. 
and he died there beside the ark of God. David presumed that it didn't matter. Just anybody can carry it. Let's go on. The second presumption is that he had done the wrong thing by trying to bring it to Jerusalem, right? So this happens with Uzzah. David gets angry, and then he's like, well, I guess I'm not going to bring it. I'm just going to go take it to this dude's house. And we know that that was not what God had intended, right? Because what? Well, he gets the blessing. He could have been, David could have received the blessing in Jerusalem for those three months. The ark goes to Jerusalem. It's in the city of David. It's in the capital. God begins to bless the people in Jerusalem. Instead, because of David's presumption that God didn't want him to bring the ark, this other guy gets the benefit, which is, I guess, good for Obed, Edom. But he got to have this benefit for something that really David should have had the whole time. So for the first presumption, somebody died. For the second presumption, somebody was blessed. Either way, because David did not consult with the Lord. It's very simple. He presumed to know what was best without asking. And he was wrong. Now, David does eventually correct his mistakes. We read in 1 Chronicles 15 that David does get it right. 1 Corinthians, uh, not 1 Corinthians, 1 Chronicles 15, 11 through 15. Then David summoned the priests, Zadok and Abiathar, the Levites, Uriel, uh, Asiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Aminadab, and said to them, You are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, uh, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. What rule? Well, the rule that only Levites, specific Levites, could handle the Ark of the Covenant. Uzzah was not in that category. David's like, oh, it'll be fine. Uzzah, you go do that. Now, I often wonder, I often, whenever I read the story, it's not like I'm just wondering about it all the time. David commands Uzzah, hey, Uzzah, why don't you carry the Ark or be with the Ark or make sure the Ark is fine? Did Uzzah object? Hey, you know, David, that's not really my job. I shouldn't really be doing that. Uh, David, why don't you get somebody else? Now, of course, David's the king, so maybe he doesn't do that. Maybe he does object, and David says, it doesn't matter, you just do it. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. And Uzzah, ultimately, Uzzah could have said no, and maybe David would have been angry at Uzzah. But the presumption of David was, that, again, that it didn't matter. Now he's realized his mistake. He's going to seek it and do it the right way, according to the rule that God had established. So the priests and Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the Ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. The Levites carried the Ark of God on their shoulders with poles, as opposed to what? As opposed to oxen. No oxen involved in this case, right? Maybe that was part of the problem. Shouldn't have been having oxen dragging the cart anyway. You carry the ark. Levites carry the ark with the poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. And so the ark eventually does arrive in Jerusalem. There is great celebration, great rejoicing. Uh, we're not going to read it. Second Chronicles 15 and 16 goes into great detail about David's establishing of worship and song and dance. There's a great big party that's going on as the, they bring the ark into the city. He assigns different people to various tasks in the worship, uh, including, this is interesting, this is one of the instances where we see um, Asaph, who if you read the book of Psalms, there will be several Psalms. The Psalm, and not of David, but of Asaph. He was one of the ones that was writing a lot of the worship in Israel. Uh, and here he is. He's, of course, assigned by David to coordinate some of the worship that's going on around the ark. In 2 Samuel 6, we see that Michael, if you remember Michael from way back when, Michael's been out of the picture for quite a while in our story. This is the daughter of Saul, David's first wife, who when David was on the run, was given to somebody else. Right? And then David comes back and sort of brings Michael back. And she hates David. She sees him dancing out the window. 
and she despises him for it. Because he's celebrating, and ultimately what has put him in a position to celebrate is her father's death, right? Her brother's death, Jonathan's death. David is only in this position because her family was not doing what God wants and lost the throne. So I think we can understand why she might be bitter about David. And her story does not end well. Her story ends with she never has kids. She's just sort of shuffled off the side. And David, I do think, does her disservice. David does not treat her in the way that I think maybe he could have or should have to be a blessing to her. And so it's important to note as we think about this, this, this time of intense worship that unlike many other times, David is not rebuked by the Lord for his celebrations. The ark coming into the city of David was the cause for worship and celebration. That The ark was finally in the place that it should be. So we keep reading in 1 Chronicles 17, the second presumption of David. Now when David lived in his house, he said to Nathan the prophet, Behold, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. And Nathan said to David, Go, do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. It's kind of interesting. David's not the only one to presume here. Nathan also makes a little bit of a presumption here. Oh, sure, it'll be fine, David. Just go ahead and do that. And then later, God comes to Nathan and says, uh, Nathan, that's not actually how this is going to be. You need to go talk to David and say some stuff to him. And I will say for all of his flaws, David does earnestly seek how he can be a blessing to the Lord and not just the other way around, right? He's not just a selfish person. He is thinking the right stuff. It's not really right that I have this grand house, palace thing, and I just have sort of a tent out back for the Ark of the Covenant. That's not right. That's not fair. Well, the Ark of the Covenant deserves a place of honor and prominence and reverence. And to be clear, David's not wrong about that. That's eventually going to be the case, that there will be a grand temple built by Solomon to house the Ark of the Lord. But this impulse, while it comes from a place of reverence, is another presumption. Right? Now, I will say, David's improving because he does ask Nathan. Right? He doesn't just sort of do it. He does go and ask a prophet, the prophet Nathan. Hey, is this something I should be doing? And Nathan says, yeah. Let's do it. Let's go ahead. Now, Nathan, of course, is told later on. And this is what follows one of, I would say, it's hard to rank Bible verses. Top seven most important verses in the entire Bible story is God's promise to David about his kingdom. And it is in this context that David is receiving this promise. Verse 4, that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. Of course, we had the tabernacle in the wilderness wanderings, right? Uh, for a while, he was, uh, the Ark of the Covenant was in the tabernacle. For a while, it was in different cities. For a while, it was in Philistine territory. Then they brought it back. It's just sort of been hanging around in, in various cities in Israel. Uh, in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges? whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? It's been centuries since the Exodus. And what's God's point here? If I wanted it, I would have told you to build it. I could have told any of the judges. I could have told Samson or Jephthah or uh, Deborah. I could, have told, I could have told Samuel. I could have told Eli. I could have told anybody. This whole time that I've been in Israel, I haven't told any of you to do this. If I had wanted that, I would have told you. 
This is the crux of the idea of presumption against God's will. Do we presume to know best what God wants, or do we let him tell us? Now, in this context here, even though the impulse came from a good place from David's heart, God is ultimately saying, don't do that. If I had wanted that, I would have asked you to do that. And I will give, we skip down to verse 11, I will give you rest. Rather than God wanting David to build him a house, God's going to bless David even more. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is, again, a pivotal verse of the Bible. Like so many things, it has double meaning. The immediate meaning, of course, for David and the kingdom, which would come to fruition in the life of Solomon. Solomon is the one that God tells, hey, build me a house. Build me this temple. And Solomon does that. Solomon is the one who establishes the, the temple worship in Israel, in, in, in Jerusalem. He is the one that has the greatest Israelite kingdom, is Solomon. His kingdom has the largest borders. It has the highest wealth. It has the best trade. It has the most success. Everything after Solomon's reign is downhill for the nation of Israel. It is the peak, this meaning of the immediate promise to David, right? I will establish his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. These are all, again, the immediate meaning of Solomon, right? I will not take the kingdom from your son. Even though Solomon is a... Bad is a strong word. Yeah, we can just say it. He's a bad guy at the end. Solomon becomes a bad guy at the end. What does God tell Solomon? Because of my promise to David... Your children will still have the throne. There ends up being divided kingdom, but Solomon's kids still end up on the throne. Now, that's the first meaning. The double meaning, of course, and we see this in the work of Jesus. The person who would come from David, from the body of David, the descendant of David, Jesus. And again, we read this, when do we? Oh, it wasn't in here. It was in Saturday morning Bible study, in the men's study of Matthew. He asked that question, right? Who, uh, is, is, who, is the, who is the Christ? Whose son is he? He's the son of David. Because of this promise. This is the promise that establishes that this future king will come and establish this kingdom forever. It is a promise. This promise is a foundational verse for many teachings, both true and false. Jews who reject Jesus use these verses to look forward to the restoration of physical Israel. They're still using these verses today to make the point that there should be this eternal kingdom in Israel. And Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't establish a throne. He's, he didn't do that, so he must not be the Messiah. He must not be the son of David. Many Christians use these verses to look forward to the establishment of a physical Christian kingdom, right? That God's going to establish the throne forever of Jesus. That he's going to establish this thing, either in the millennium or some other thing that's going to happen, even in the restoration of Israel, all of those teachings come from this promise. This promise that God is going to restore the kingdom to David. But the temptation of presumption is ever-present. To presume 
that the promise means what we think it should mean and not what God says it means. To look at this situation and assume that what we want out of it is the same thing that God wants. That to assume that our desires trump what God has said or what he will do, that is to presume against God. God has confirmed his own promises in the way that he wants. In this particular instance, we know how this has come about. Luke 1, 30, verse 33. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. And behold, you shall conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. What does that mean? That's what God promised to David. I will establish your kingdom, the throne of his kingdom, forever. And the angel tells Mary, now is the time. That's coming to pass. The person that you will bear will have the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. That's what was going to come to pass in the life of Jesus. The person that Mary bore. Luke 17, at the end, towards the end, verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It would not be like the other nations. It would not have a boundary. They could be like, oh, I'm going to step here and now I'm in the kingdom. I'm going to step out and now I'm not in the kingdom. That's not how it would be. It's not going to be like the rest of the kingdoms. Instead, it would be in the midst of people. You, well, I should rephrase that. I hope you are in his kingdom as we speak. Just like people in, I don't know, Timbuktu are in his kingdom as we speak. In the midst of his people, Jesus reigns forever and ever, and there will be no end. We're in it now. The promise to David has come to pass. And so the summary of the conclusion of this portion of the story, 1 Chronicles 18, 13 through 14, the, the temple, not the temple, the Ark of the Covenant is brought back to Jerusalem. God gives this promise to David, and what ends up happening? The Lord gave David uh, victory wherever he went, so David reigned over all Israel. He administered justice and equity to all his people. Again, we should note, he did that despite his flaws, flaws that we've read at length already that did not prevent him from administering justice and equity to all his people. Your flaws do not have to prevent you from being what God needs you to be in his kingdom. Your mistakes and your past doesn't have to stop you unless you presume, oh, God surely couldn't forgive me. Unless you presume, I just, I can't do that. That's not something I can do. Who can say that? It's not you. God is the one who can say that. Now, if David is the prototype, the shadow, as the Hebrew writer would say, of Jesus, these things are the shadow of things to come, is how the Hebrew writer phrases this, then we consider the rule of Jesus. If David was able to administer justice and equity, how much more will Jesus be able to do? To administer justice and equity among his people. That's us, right? We're, we're the people. 
that Jesus is working to administer justice and equity in our midst. If God gave victory to David, how much more did he give to Jesus? And of course, we understand that the ultimate culmination of this victory in the cross. But I would suggest to you that that's still happening today. That Jesus is still winning today. Winning the battles. Battles of who? Battles of what? Our battles. He's winning on our behalf. The victory after victory after victory. If we will remain in his kingdom. That he'll give to us. We live in the kingdom of David. Ruled by a king who is far better than David. Oh, thank be to God for that. Because David, we know, was not perfect. But to be clear, I'm glad it's not any of you either. I'm glad it's not me. We live in a kingdom ruled by the perfect king. With all of David's good traits and none of his bad traits. And so we'll end with Hebrews 12, 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. And, and to be clear, we, we need to clarify this. The contrast of spatial presence, right? Not come to Mount Zion as in you walked to Jerusalem. You have come to Mount Zion by approaching God, wherever you are in the world. If you're approaching God and his people, you're coming into his presence in communion. You're coming into his presence in worship. Today, you came to Mount Zion. And if we had been worshiping out in the backyard, if we had been worshiping out in a park, we would still have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, not Jerusalem, in earth, but heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels in festal gathering. You cannot see them, but have you considered the fact that they might be here? Worshiping with us? Helping us? It's nice to think about. You have come to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, like David was having feast and dancing and celebration and worship. Why? Because the ark had been returned to Jerusalem. The ark had come into the presence of his people. The people had brought the ark where it needed to go. And that was a cause for celebration, just like when we come to God. It is a cause for celebration. To the assembly of the firstborn who had enrolled in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Therefore, so what? Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Because what happens to Solomon's kingdom? It's shaken. It's not even just shaken, it's divided. It's broken, torn asunder because of the sin of Solomon and the sin of his children the sin of those who would come after David. We have come to a kingdom that no matter what you do, cannot be shaken. Now you might be booted out. Jesus might boot you out. But no matter what any of us do, we're not breaking the kingdom. Because it's not a thing that has boundaries, right? It's not coming in a way that you can say, oh, look, there it is. It's in the midst of the people of God. Let us then offer to God acceptable worship. That phrase acceptable is so interesting, right? What does that imply? That we will not presume in our worship, right? That we will not do what David so often did and think that what we know is better. We will allow God to speak for himself what he desires in his worship. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. 
For our God is a consuming fire. Consuming how? Uzzah just touched the ark. He wasn't allowed and he died. Because he presumed. Our God is a consuming fire of those who will not approach him the way that he desires. That applies to us. Now, God's not going to strike you dead probably on earth. But ultimately, we know that that consumption will happen, right? The consuming fire that we will face in judgment if we presume, like David presumed, like Uzzah presumed, if we do not approach him with the reverence and awe and acceptable worship that he deserves. The kingdom that we, again, I cannot stress enough, are in at this moment. The kingdom that cannot be broken. And so the invitation is very simple. Coming into the building did not lead you into the kingdom. Again, we could have been anywhere, any number of places. It could be in a garage. It could be in, I don't know, anywhere you want to be. If the people of God are gathering, there the kingdom is. So the invitation is not to enter the building. The invitation is to join the people, to be joined to God by submitting to his will, confessing your sins, turning and repenting, being united with him in immersion. If you want to enter the kingdom, come while we stand and sing.